the way that something starts is often indicative of what it will look like once it's fully grown to a greater degree or to a developed degree. We see it in people. We look at an adult that we knew when they were a child, and we can see that there are certain characteristics that were present in them even when they were infant and toddlers that they carry with them into adulthood and into development. We can look at an expanded organization or an enterprise. We can see something that's grand and big. And yet we can think about or we can look at what it was when it was small and we can see that what it is developed is just a greater expression of what it was when it first started out. So what's the point? The point is that to understand how something big became what it was, often you need look no further than that something's beginning. And what you find at the beginning is that all the markers for what it one day would become were there even when it was small. Now, when it comes to the kingdom of God, this entity, and we'll call it the church because it's how we interact with it and it's how God is letting his kingdom be manifested in the world that we live in today, we recognize that it's vast and it's huge but that it started as something that was so small. In the book of Daniel, it was described as a little pebble that would crash into the feet of clay that represented the foundation of all the kingdoms of the world. And that that little pebble would grow into a mountain that would fill the entire earth. And it would be something that would continually grow and that would so overshadow and supersede anything else that existed within the world. Now, for those of us that are here tonight, at least I would say for most of us that would come to a Bible study on a Wednesday night, we have shifted our allegiance and our citizenship from this world's kingdom or kingdoms to the kingdom of God that is eternal. We've changed paths completely. Now, why? Why have we done that? The reason is because, at least in our spirit, we've caught a glimpse of of how vast and how sound God's reality and his kingdom are. And we've concluded that his kingdom is so real and it has such a sure foundation that we can stake our lives on it and it's worthy of everything that we are. But the question remains, how did something that is so big today, the kingdom of God in the world and his involvement in things, how did it become as big as it is from something that started so small? The answer is that we need only look to the beginning. So as we are in Luke chapter 5, we find ourselves at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. As of yet, he's only a few weeks into his work that he would do in revealing God and ultimately where it would end on the cross. We saw that after the temptation that he endured, the 40 days where he fasted in the wilderness, He spent a few days in the north and then a few days in the south of Jerusalem. And in our study last week, he set up the headquarters of his northern kingdom ministry in the small town of Capernaum, one of the coastal towns of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. And that's where we pick up tonight as we see Jesus uh, in that. And so as we begin in verse 1 and we see the beginnings of Jesus' ministry, we see, first of all, the foundation of his foundation. Notice in verse 1. It says that it came to pass 
that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought or for a catch. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we've toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net broke. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the drought of fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth, from now on, you shall catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. What we have here in this text is we have the calling of the first four of the twelve that will ultimately become the apostles of the Lamb. The call of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And we're told that it happened as Jesus was moving about the region of Galilee. And that as he was teaching, there was such a great multitude of people that had gathered around him that they were literally pressing up against him. And the reason for that was obviously so that they could hear what it is that he was going to say. He was limited by the distance that the sound waves could carry. And so people would press in to get as close as they could in order to hear what it is that he was saying. And the press became so great that he was backed up against the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Gennesaret here, but it's the same sea. And so realizing the problem that the multitudes are great and seeing the danger that he's in, that he's in danger of being thrust right into the water himself, he sees by the shore two fishing boats that are not currently being used for that purpose. We're told that one of those boats belonged to Simon Peter. And so Jesus asks Simon if he can borrow his boat for a little while. And so he gets into it and he asks him to thrust out just a little bit from the land. And that would solve two problems. Number one, it would create a little bit of a buffer between him and the people so that he wasn't being thronged so closely. But the second thing that it would provide was a little bit of a sound system. I don't know if you've ever communicated while you're on a boat or if you've been in proximity of another boat that's on water, but sound carries incredibly well across water. And so it would enable Jesus to teach and it would allow the people on the land, all of them to hear without having any other kind of PA system. And so Jesus uses Peter's boat and he sits down and he begins to teach them. Now, we're not told the contents of the message, but we're told that when Jesus was finished, that he looked at Peter and he said, hey, Peter, I don't do, I don't use anything for free. So why don't we do this? Let's go out into the deep for a catch of fish. So Jesus gives to Peter here 
two commands, and then he gives him a promise. The first command is launch out. The second is let down your nets. And the promise is for a catch. Now, Peter's response to Jesus' request is that he casts doubt upon the promise. Because what Jesus is asking him to do makes absolutely no sense in the mind of a fisherman. And that's for three reasons. Number one, he's acknowledging that they, the fishing industry, that night are out of sync with the migratory patterns of the fish. That can happen sometimes. You can think you know where the fish are going to be, but the Sea of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee is a pretty big area of water when you're trying to find where the fish were. They toiled all night and they caught absolutely nothing. And if you're any kind of a fisherman, you know how frustrating that can be. The second reason it doesn't make sense is because shallow nets don't yield catches in deep water. Jesus said, go out into the deep. Well, you don't use the nets that the fishermen would be using in deep water. You wait for the evening time. And then you go into the shallows where the fish would come to feed and you drag your nets along where they can catch the bottom. And that's where the fish are. So Jesus said, go out into the deep. That doesn't make sense in the mind of Peter. And then for the third reason, of course, daytime is not the time to catch fish. It's the evening and the morning. That's when you catch fish. And so Jesus hears this word, this, I'm sorry, Peter hears this word, this command that Jesus gives, and he's doubtful that anything will come of it. But for whatever reason, he gives polite obedience to Jesus. Now, keep in mind that at this time, Peter is not one of the 12 apostles. In fact, Peter wasn't even at the teaching session that Jesus was giving. He was working and just finishing up his night shift. And Jesus just happened to come upon and borrow his boat at this time. But for some reason, he felt obligated or he had enough respect, or perhaps it was because of the multitude that was still there, that he didn't want to disobey or dishonor Jesus. And so he obliges him. And he says, all right, Lord, because you said it, I'm going to go out and I'm going to uh, go out behind this. I'm going to give you some polite obedience. But here's the heart of Peter's reply or Peter's attitude at this time. He's looking at Jesus and he sees an itinerant preacher. He might even know of Jesus from his past, that he grew up working in Joseph's carpenter shop. But his mindset towards Jesus at this time is that, Jesus, this is what I do. I'm a fisherman. I have fished since the time I was knee-high to a grasshopper. I know how fishing works. I know where the fish are and where the fish aren't. I know what happens when we go out and when we come in. I know this like I know the back of my hand. And what you are asking me to do right now is borderline ridiculous. And I'm certain that I'm going to have to wash my nets again in vain. Now, Jesus, you're a carpenter. If you were telling me how I should build a chair or how I should build a form for concrete, if you were tell- then I would be more than happy to do anything that you're telling. But carpenters do the carpentry, leave the fishing to the fishermen. I think I know what I'm doing in this whole thing. But Jesus, you said it, and so I will let it out, and, and we'll, we'll do it, and we'll see what we can uh, do in this thing. Well, it tells us that the result of that is that they yielded a great multitude of fish, so much so that not only did the net break, but that the fish filled two boats. Those weren't small boats. You could put a number of people in those small little fishing vessels. 
So much so that both boats, Peter's boat and also Zebedee's boat, that those boats both began to sink because of the great yield of the catch of fishes. And it tells us that Peter was astonished and also those that were with him when they saw the catch of fish and he fell at Jesus' knees. And his word was, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And so he's giving to Jesus at this point repentance. Now that repentance, I don't think is a repentance unto salvation, but rather it's a repentance that reflects Peter's doubt of Jesus' ability to do what it was that he said that they were going out there to do. He recognizes that there's an authority and a power in Jesus that supersedes his own, and then that results in a call to full-time ministry as Jesus then looks at them and he says, don't worry about it. From now on, you will catch men. And it says that the four of them, both Peter and Andrew and also the sons of Zebedee, in fact, for Andrew, you've got to read the other gospel. It's not clear in Luke but that they left all and they began to follow him. We have a few things in this passage that I think are are noteworthy. First of all, you see in Peter, we see the progression of a calling. This is the fourth point of interaction that Peter has had with Jesus in just the first few weeks of Jesus' ministry. The first instance where Peter met Jesus was the day after Jesus returned from the 40 days of temptation. Peter had been a disciple of John the Baptist, but John pointed to Jesus as he returned and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And when Peter and Andrew went up to Jesus, Jesus laid eyes on Peter for the first time and he said an astonishing thing. Without knowing anything about him, he said, you are Simon, but you shall be called Cephas or Peter, little stone. You are shifting sand. That's what Simon means. You're unstable as water but you will be little stone or you will become stable. And what Jesus did is he looked at Peter, saw what he was, and then saw what he could make him and then made the declaration that I'm going to perform a work in you to change you from what you are to what it is that God destined you to be. Now, Peter did not follow Jesus from that moment. Jesus went his way. Peter went his way. Peter ultimately finds himself back up in his hometown of Capernaum where he has a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And so the first instance or first touch between Jesus and Peter was a personal encounter down in Jordan where John was baptizing. The second was a powerful teaching that Peter heard in the synagogue in Capernaum. We studied that last week. Jesus gave a teaching that astonished the people that were there. It was a teaching that carried with it God's authority, something that they had never heard before. And then that teaching was followed by a touching where Jesus then healed a man of an infirmity. And the people were astonished again because they saw that it's not just the words that come out of his mouth that carry power, but it's also the touch of his hand. He carries with him the authority of God. And so Peter saw or heard a powerful teaching. Then he saw an observable change, not just in the man in the synagogue, but in his own household. After church, Peter came, I'm sorry, Jesus came to Peter's house for lunch. And when he got there, Peter's wife's mother was sick with a fever. And Jesus went in and laid hands on her and prayed for her. And the healing was so immediate that it says that she rose up and she immediately began to serve them or minister to them. And so Jesus was able to change two lives in one day and Peter was able to witness and see that power. That was number three. Number four is right here. 
in the text that we just read. And what Jesus became to Peter in this instance is he became a worthy leader. See, he had been all of those other things, but it isn't until now that Peter sees Jesus as a worthy leader. Prior to this, Peter had been impressed with Jesus. He was open to Jesus. He liked Jesus. He saw Jesus' power. But as of yet, he didn't know Jesus, and he didn't know his power or fully trust in him. So what changed in Peter? Peter was brought to a point where he realized, where he learned, that Jesus is smarter than he is, even in the area where he is smartest. Peter thought, well, I'm the fisherman. I know how all these things work. But that day he realized that Jesus even knew more than Peter about fishing, about the thing that Peter knew the best about. Prior to that, it had been, well, you know, hey, Jesus, he's great in the synagogue. He's great for meeting the needs of people. He's great on Sundays. But the rest of life is just real life. If he's not with me on the job, if he's not with me in my family, if he's not with me as I'm going through the daily grind of life, then he's good where he is, but he's not worthy of my full allegiance. But when Peter saw what Jesus did out in the boat, Jesus, in Peter's mind, changed from teacher to Lord. In verse 5, he calls him teacher or master. He says master. We've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. That's all Jesus was to Peter prior to this point. But after he saw what Jesus did with the fish, it says he fell at his knees and he called him Lord. He said, depart from me, O Lord. And he bowed in submission and he gave his allegiance to Jesus at this time. I believe that there are many people that exist, even in churches, even professed Christians, maybe even real Christians, that they like Jesus, they believe in him, but they haven't fully trusted him and made him Lord over all of their lives. They like his teachings, they like his people, but they don't trust him fully. Here's what you need to know is that Jesus is worthy of your full allegiance. And that in the area of life where you are smartest and you think that you know more than God or that God can't help you because it's not his area of interest, know this, that Jesus is smarter than you in that area of life where you are smartest. And that not only is he smarter than you, but he's willing and wanting to be a part of that in your life. And he's waiting for you to make your full allegiance and trust on him completely to be the Lord of everything that you are. See, Jesus said to Peter, you are Simon, you shall be Peter. There was work that was to be cut out. But Jesus couldn't begin to perform that work until Peter had come to the point where Jesus was Lord of everything in his life. The same thing's true for us. He has a work that he wants to do in each one of our lives He sees what we are and he sees what he's going to make us. But it isn't until we completely surrender and give him our all that he then can begin to do that work that he wants to do because he uses every area of our lives and every moment of our lives to perfect that work. And so he's worthy of our full allegiance in everything. Um, The other thing here that I, I would warn you against is beware of the tendency that we can have of compartmentalization of trusting Jesus in some areas of our lives, but in other areas thinking, well, he's of no help to me there, either because he doesn't care or he doesn't know. That's not true. Jesus cares and Jesus knows. And so don't compartmentalize him out of certain areas of your life just because you think you know better than God in those things. This passage also testifies to us 
of the importance of complete obedience. Notice the command that Jesus gave to Peter. He said, let down the nets for the catch. But it tells us that Peter's response to that command is that he simply let down the net, singular. Jesus said, let down two, let down both. But Peter said, well, I've already cleaned them. I don't want to do it again. That's a big job. I'll let down one. And the result of it wasn't that he lost the blessing, but he damaged the net. He didn't completely and fully obey. By the way, if you string this together with the other gospels, especially John's gospel, what you realize is that Peter used John's net, most likely. Because when Jesus, it says in in, in the other gospel, actually I think it's in Matthew, it says that Peter and Andrew were washing their nets, but James and John were mending their nets. Why? (laughs) Because Peter probably used James and John's net. He's like, I already washed mine. I ain't doing it again. So he's like, John, let me borrow your net. And it ripped, it broke, you know, because, because of it. Understand this, Christian. Obedience to God for you and me is the great equalizer in life. In the kingdoms of this world, if you want to be successful, then you need three things or a combination of those three things or maybe even some other. But first of all, you need intelligence. If you want to be successful in this world, you better be smart. You better know what's going on. You better be on top of your game and know what's going on in your industry. You've got to have a degree of intelligence. Also, in this world systems, you need energy. Intelligence without the strength to implement doesn't take you very far. And so you got to be smart, but you also got to be strong and you got to have drive. There's got to be energy behind that intelligence. And then number three, you got to have resources because you just do. In this world, if you don't have something to start with, then you're not going to get very far. And we see that happening in this world right now. It's the people that have the least that need the most because you need resources. But none of that is true when it comes to success as a Christian or even living a successful life as a Christian. You don't need any one of those things. What does the Bible say about intelligence? Paul the Apostle said it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, you know your calling, brothers, how that not many wise, not many noble, not many strong after the flesh are called. God doesn't need our intelligence to do great things within our lives. You don't need energy or strength to be successful in this life as a Christian. Paul would later write to the Corinthians again, and he would ask God to help him with a problem he was having, and God's response to Paul was he would say that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul, realizing that, said, I will therefore glory in my infirmities and my necessities and my distresses because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So you don't need strength in the Christian life to have a successful life. What about resources? Look at all the people that made the biggest impact with their lives and did the most. And look at what they started with. I mean, look at Jesus himself. He would say, the son of man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. He didn't have money to pay taxes for him and Peter. Peter had to go catch a fish so that he could find a coin to pay taxes for himself. You look at David, who was brought up in an impoverished family and brought from following after the sheep and what God would make of him. There's no resources involved in that. You look at the ministry of Paul or David or Daniel or any of them, Joseph. They came from nothing. They had nothing behind them. Because with God, you don't need the things that the world says you need. But you know what you do need? You need obedience. That's all we need. And so obedience is the great equalizer. 
Because if we would just do what he says and we would order our lives in such a way as to say, God, what do you say is important for me to give myself to and the character I'm supposed to have and the way that I'm supposed to live? And if we would live our lives in accordance with those things, then God sees to elevating us and bringing us to where we need to be. No intelligence needed. No energy necessary. No resources required. You obey what Jesus says and he will get the work done within your life. That's the promise of God. Obedience is important. And then finally, on this passage before we move on, for Peter and for the others that were there, this was the most important first lesson that they could learn in their calling, in light of what their future would hold. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, if you want to sum it up in a verse, and it's this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And they needed to know this right off the bat, starting out. That if you're going to serve me, if you're going to be a fisher of men, if you're going to bear fruit in this life, then you're going to have to learn that things don't operate according to the dictates of your own understanding. Lean upon me, trust in me, and do what I say. And all things will come to pass according to my will and according to my prospering pleasure. And so Peter uh, and them begin to follow. We see the beginning of Jesus now starting to build his team. And the lesson that he gives to them in this thing is that obedience and faith is going to bring you success in what it is that God's called you to be. Well, it says in verse 12 that it came to pass that when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but to go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and there prayed. Here we see in this passage the foundation of his purpose. We saw the foundation of his foundation in the calling of the first four. But early on, again, in Jesus' ministry, now he displays the foundation of the very purpose for his coming in the healing of this man with leprosy. We're told that it was in a certain city. We're not sure exactly where. But Jesus encounters, as he moves through, a man that we're told was full of leprosy. Now, leprosy was a death sentence to anyone who was diagnosed and who had that disease. There was no known cure for it, and it was highly contagious. And so if you were diagnosed with leprosy, a couple of things would happen in your life. Number one is that you would be separated from people. You would no longer be allowed to be in the congregation with other men and women because of the vulnerability it would present that they might also catch or contract the disease. So you would be ostracized. The second thing is that you'd have to go and live in a leper colony. You'd have to be around other people that were in the same miserable state as you, and you would have to stay there until you died. You would just know that there's a death sentence upon your life, and that's all you've got to hope for and look for. Now, we're told that the man is full of leprosy, meaning that he's at an advanced stage of the thing. Leprosy always starts small, and then it works its way systemically through a person's body. And so this man is at a point now 
where he's nearer to the end of the rope than it was at the beginning. And he hears word that there's someone who can heal, someone who can save. And he hears that he's in a particular certain city and this man finds his way to the company where Jesus is walking. And he says that he fell on his face before Jesus and he prayed saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now that's an interesting prayer that this man offers to Jesus. Because what we see is that this man's faith was unshaken by Jesus' ability. He knew that the physicians couldn't help him. He knew that the medical world and medical field had nothing to offer this man. But he believed that Jesus had the power to heal him and his faith was unshaken that Jesus could help him. But where his faith did stumble and where he was shaken was by Jesus' willingness to heal him. He said, Lord, if you're willing, I know that you can make me clean. It's not a question of your power. It's a question of will you do it? And so the Bible tells us then that Jesus replied and it says that he was willing that quickly that he speaks, touches, and the man is immediately cleansed of his leprosy in such a way that that man knows that he's instantaneously healed and so does everyone else that he's with him. Then Jesus gives to this man instructions, three commands and then a reason. The first command is he says, make sure that you tell no man. Now stop and think about that for just a second. Put yourself in this leper's shoes. You've just been given a new line of life after you had an immediate death sentence staring you in the face. And then the person who heals you says, shh, don't tell anybody about it. Really, what's that like? You go home that day and you're perfectly clean. You walk in the house, you whistle, you got the skin of a baby. Everybody looks at you, what happened? Nothing. (laughs) But, But look at you, you're cleansed, you're healed. How did this... This is a miracle. We've never seen this before. The medical, you, we have to get this in every journal. You, we can start a website. We'll start a business. How did it happen? Don't know. This is kind of an unreasonable request that Jesus is making. I mean, don't tell anybody what just happened. It also flies in the face of everything else that we know. Everywhere else, Jesus says, go tell it on the mountains. Declare what's done. The spirit and the bride say, come. We're to testify of what's been happening. Most likely, the command is, in the immediate. He knows that the man's going to tell. The man has to tell. He, he was cleansed of leprosy. But it's a matter of priority. In other words, before you tell anyone else, there's something that I want you to do first with what's been done for you. So don't tell anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priests and then offer the offering that Moses commanded in the law when someone is cleansed of a leper and do it, and here's the reason why he's to do that, as a testimony unto them. Now, again, leprosy was an incurable disease. There was no known way for leprosy to be cured. And there's only two instances in history and in biblical history where leprosy was cured or cleansed. One of those was Miriam, Moses' sister, who was smitten with leprosy at a moment of rebellion in her life, and God miraculously healed her of that leprosy. And then the other one was Naaman, the Syrian. Remember from the ministry of Elisha who came and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River? But in both of those instances, it was God that did the healing. There was no medical feat or or, uh, thing that was done to accomplish that healing. It was something that God did himself. And so being that it was incurable and ostracizable, these people would be separated for life. However, in the law, 
the first five books. God made provision for the leper in the day of his cleansing. He gave a law concerning what a leper is to do in the day that he's cleansed. Wait a minute. God's the only one that can cleanse leprosy. That's right. The testimony that Jesus is seeking to bring to these priests and leaders is beginning to come clear. Is that if only God can cure leprosy, and this man has been cured of leprosy, then that means God is close at hand and close at work within the nation of Israel. And so the testimony is that God is here and that he can do the impossible and that he does it for the undeserving. Why would he heal this man? Why would he cleanse this man of leprosy? Now, what's the testimony to us who sit here tonight and read this account so far on the other side of the priests and all that that entailed? Here's what it is is that when it comes to human impossibility, we don't have to overcome God's reluctance to help us. We only need to lay hold upon his willingness. See, every single one of us face things within our lives that are like a leprosy to us. Every one of us has issues and things within our lives, whether they're personal struggles or whether they're circumstances that we find ourselves in the midst of, things that we see as absolutely impossible. There's a catch-22. There's no way that this can be done on human terms. Well, that's not true with God. The Bible says that nothing shall be impossible with God. In Jeremiah, God says, I'm the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And then he answers his own question a few verses later. And he says, nothing is impossible for me. Nothing is too hard for God. He can do anything. And oftentimes when we bring our circumstances to God, we don't doubt his ability to help us. We know, we believe he's God. He can do all things. But what we do often doubt is God's willingness. I know that he can. I'm just not so sure that he will help me in this biggest thing. So what do we do? We lay hold upon God's goodness by faith. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says that if God did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all, how much more shall he not now freely give us all things? In other words, the seal of God's willingness to help us in our situations was the fact that if he wouldn't spare his own son but would subject him to the level of torture and torment that he did, then why would God be unwilling to help us in the other areas of our life? And the answer is that he is willing to help us in the other areas of our life. Now, sometimes the timing of those things are in God's hands for reasons that we don't understand. I tell my kids all the time, Hey, the Bible says that God is the God of all comfort. So if you need comfort, where do you go to get that comfort? Do you go to medication or go to some worldly thing? No. The Bible says that comfort comes from God. He's the God of all comfort. He restores my soul, my psyche. And so I go to God. You say, okay, well, I go to God and ask for comfort, and comfort doesn't come. What does it mean then? Here's what it means. It means that God doesn't want you comforted right now because he's doing something in your life And the way that you feel is a part of him accomplishing that work. And so let patience have its perfect work and he'll do what he's going to do in his time. But that shouldn't stop us from asking or thinking that God's not willing. God is always good and he never apologizes. He does what is perfect and what is right within our lives. And we're called to come and ask. What if this leper didn't ask? Would it change God's ability? Not at all. Would it change his willingness? Not at all. But would he have received? Not at all. 
So how are we to deal with the things in our lives, the needs that we have that are impossible for men and that only God can fix? We're to bring them to him in simple faith and we're to ask, believing that because if he didn't spare his son, that he is willing also to help us in the things that we have. Now, the best news of all in all of this is that God is willing and he shows himself willing to cure and cleanse the incurable disease. Leprosy in the Bible is always a type or a picture of sin. They work the same way. They start small, they seem insignificant, but they completely consume until they totally destroy. Leprosy and sin have so much in common. They also have no human cure. You can't cure leprosy. You can't cure sin. Only God can take away sin. And by cleansing a leper as one of the first things that Jesus did, what this illustrates is that his purpose in what he came to do was to cleanse and cure the sin that was the blight of all mankind. That's what Jesus came to do. And not only is he able to do it, but he's willing to do it. And that's good news for you and I, because it means that every one of us here, though we don't have leprosy, every one of us does have the problem of sin. And we find that in our Savior, we have someone who is both able and willing to help us in that thing. But we need to come and ask. There's an asking, and he's willing at uh, the asking. And so he moves from there in verse 17, and it says that it came to pass that on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could find not, uh, not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop or the roof. And they let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. I would have loved to have been there and seen that. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answering said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say, to say thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power upon earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy couch and go unto thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereupon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. You bet they did. Now, what Jesus illustrated through the cleansing of the leper in the previous passage, he now declares openly through the healing of this man that has the palsy. We see that at this time, Jesus' reputation is quickly spreading. As he moves from place to place, the multitudes are quickly thronging him and filling every square inch of space to listen to the things that he has to say and hoping that something can be done for their lives. We're also told at this time that Jesus is being evaluated by the religious elite of his days. 
It tells us that the scribes, the Pharisees, the doctors of the law were coming out of these various villages and even coming from so far as Jerusalem, a good 70 miles away, in order to hear the things that Jesus was saying. But the reason that they were coming was because they wanted to evaluate the credibility of this man whose ministry was now gathering steam and that was posing a threat to their influence among the nation and to the people. Now we're also told here that God was as interested and in love with those evaluators and critics as he was with the people that were coming with sincere hearts wanting to hear it. It says that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. But the implication is that they weren't interested in any of that, nor were they aware of their need. So while Jesus is teaching, these four men have a friend who's sick with a palsy. It's a debilitating disease that has now crippled him permanently physically. And they have hope that if they can get him close enough to Jesus, Jesus, like he is to everyone else healing them, that he will also heal their friend that they care so much about. But when they come to the house, they find that they can't get in. The whole house is jam-packed with people. All the doorways are full. The porches and patios, there's no way for them to get their friend who's bedridden and being carried close enough to Jesus during that time. But they're not going to take no for an answer or take a crowded house as a closed door. And so they go up on the roof, they tear open the roof, and then they lower their friend down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine if that happened right now? I mean, you would imagine that if this was in one of the churches today, the ushers would immediately be there with guns drawn and tasers pointed. And, you know, I mean, we wouldn't allow for something like that. But Jesus hears the pounding of, poof, you know, and the dust settles. And the guy who owns the house is going, what in the world? And Jesus is going, no, no, it's good. I got this, you know. Jesus doesn't heal the house, you know. But the man is lowered down in front of the place where Jesus is, is, is teaching. And Jesus responds when he sees the faith of the four friends, and he sees the man laying lowered in front of all those people in front of him. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth is, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's an amazing statement and invoked an incredible response by everyone that was in the room. First of all, the four friends that lowered Jesus or lowered the man in front of Jesus. I'm certain that they were thinking, that's not why we brought him here. I mean, that's it? I mean, everybody else gets healed. The lepers are cleansed. You know, hands are stretched out and he gets his sins forgiven. That's not why we're here, Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees, those that were evaluating the ministry of Jesus at that time, their reaction to the thing is, who does this guy think that he is? This is blasphemy. No one has the authority to forgive sins on earth except for God. Only God could forgive sins. This man is blasphemous. And so you hear the reaction. The tension is thick while Jesus says these words. But then it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts and he looked at those men and he posed a question to them. He said, why do you reason in your hearts? Because I said to the man, your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say? To say that your sins are forgiven or to say, rise up and walk? Now, the obvious answer to that question is that it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. And the reason it's easier is because nobody in the room actually knows whether or not it took place. You can't see sins. You can't see God's ledger and the way that he measures someone's behavior and what's laid to their account. All of that's somewhere else, somewhere invisible. So if someone's sins are forgiven, nobody has to know a thing. So it's much easier to just say, hey, your sins are forgiven you. So Jesus 
seeking to prove to them that he had the authority to forgive sins and that his word had power to forgive sins. He then proves that by turning to the man and saying to him, saying to them, first of all, that you might know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the cyclical palsy, he says, take up your bed, rise up and walk. And it says immediately the man received the strength and he took up his bed and he went home glorifying God. And that the people were astonished at what had taken place that day and their reaction to it is that we have seen weird or strange things happen uh, to them uh, today when they saw all of these things. And the Pharisees had absolutely no response to Jesus. And it doesn't even tell us here that they conferred among themselves or anything else. They saw, they heard, and then they went their way saying, we have seen strange things today. So what's going on in this passage? What does it speak to us? First of all, and most importantly concerning this passage, is that the forgiveness of sins is a greater work than the healing of the body. No matter what need any one of us might have at any given time, the greater need that we have always is to have our sins forgiven. See, if Jesus had healed this man's infirmity but didn't forgive his sins, then the healing is only temporary. Because if the sin issue isn't dealt with and put away, then eventually that man's going to die in a state where he's lost and his latter condition will be worse than the first. Because in hell, I'm sure I'd rather be living on earth in a palsy than I would be burning in hell for eternity. And so to get a physical healing but not to have my sins forgiven is not to have the job done of what I really need. See? Now, flip it around. To have my sins forgiven, but to not be healed physically, all that does is delay the healing a little bit. Because it seals my eternity in heaven. The Bible says that once my sins are forgiven, I pass from death to life, from darkness to light. My name is translated from lost to the Lamb's book of life where I am saved. And even if that means I have to live out the rest of my days with an infirmity or with a condition that's unpleasant, Because my sins are forgiven, ultimately I know that one day I will stand with him at that day. I will be healed. I will be whole. Okay? So the more important work is to have your sins forgiven. But Jesus does both for this man right here. Now, I get the question sometimes. In fact, I I probably get it a couple times a year. People come to me and they bring to me the verse from John chapter 14. You know the verse I'm talking about. The one where Jesus said to his disciples... Because I go to my Father, you will do greater works than the works that I have done. And people say, we look around the church today and we see the kingdom of God and and we look at the people and we say, that's not happening. I mean, Jesus walked on water. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes. Jesus did incredible things that we certainly don't see happening today. So why not? What does that say about the church or what did Jesus mean when he said it? I would submit to you this, is that if you lead a person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have done a greater work than walking on water, multiplying loaves and fishes, or raising the dead in a physical sense. Because you have brought a person out of darkness and put them in a place where they are eternally forgiven and set free. That's a much greater work than any temporal miracle that we can do in the realm of men. And that's the power that God has given to us. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you 
and you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And in that is the platform for the greater works than these. Jesus did the greatest work on this man by forgiving his sins. Now, the other thing in this passage is this, is that the Pharisees were absolutely right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. They were correct in their doctrine. Jesus, if he was just a man, didn't have the authority to forgive this man of his sins. And so they asked the right question. They said, who is this? That was the question that the Pharisees asked. And by Jesus forgiving and then healing this man, what he did is that he tossed the ball back into their court for them to deal with that question. You want to know who I am? You just saw, heard what I said and saw what I did. Now you go and you figure it out. Now the issue that the Pharisees had was an authority issue right down to the very core. Their issue was that Jesus was not under their authority. He wasn't coming up through their system. They owned the religion of Jehovah in Israel. It was theirs. And Jesus wasn't a part of their system. And so therefore, because he was not under their authority, therefore they were reluctant to give credence to what it was that he was doing. They also were not willing to be under his authority because it would cost them their position and their influence. And they would have to admit that they weren't right about their assessment of who God was. And so their issue was an authority right issue right down to the core. Now they have to deal with what they just heard and what, what they just saw. So that means that they have to either accept it, accept the fact that Jesus is God, that he does have authority to forgive sins, and that they need to be set right underneath his authority. Or they can reject it and they can say, no, we're not going to accept that this healing and this forgiveness was valid or from God. Or they could seek to remove it. And they're going to reject and they're going to seek to remove. And the issue always is the authority. I believe that it is common for people like these scribes and Pharisees to evaluate Jesus. That's what these men did. They were evaluating. They were seeing whether or not they wanted to give their place to him and be put under him. Understand this if you're here tonight and you're evaluating Jesus. Is that he has absolutely no problem with you at all. The power of the Lord was present to heal. But the ball's in your court. What are you going to do with who he is and what it is that he came to do? This also marks the beginning, the official beginning of Jesus' problems with uh, the Pharisees that he's going to have that will ultimately um, end in his demise. But we'll stop there tonight in our move through and we'll pick up next time because Jesus is now going to get into a dialogue with the Pharisees that goes through the next I would say chapter, the rest of chapter four, and then on into chapter uh, five. And we'll look at that next week as we look at Jesus' challenging of the religious um, authorities of his uh, day. But understand this, um, concerning the beginning, yeah, the musicians can come, we're closing. There are many of us that are here tonight that have been walking with Jesus, I would say, for quite some time. We're... Christians, we know the book, we've been in church, we've served, we've been used by him. We have kingdom truth. But part of that kingdom truth that we have is that we are called to continually grow. We're never to become stagnant in our walk with God, not even for one day. 
that even as the kingdom itself started as that little stone that became a great mountain and became so vast and so big, that's God's will for each one of our lives. We start with something so small. We put our faith in Christ. We give our lives to him. And then we just begin to grow. And God's will for every one of us is that we would continue to grow. We say, well, how does that happen? How do you get to a point where you continually are growing in the Lord, where you're not growing stagnant? Well, at the beginning of the study, remember I said, when you look at something so big and you ask the question, how did it get so big? You need only to look at the beginning. How did it start? Because once it becomes big, it will still bear the resemblance of what it was when it was small. What Jesus is giving to us in this passage, in this chapter, is the foundational things that made his kingdom great, but they're also the foundational things that make Christians great. And they are very simple. Number one, his lordship. Jesus manifested himself as Lord of Peter's life. And the call for Peter was to place himself continually and totally under the authority of Jesus in every area of his life. And for you and I to grow, that's a key. For more and more of our lives to be surrendered to him. Lord, I've given you so much of my life, but there are certain areas that I've held on to. Not because they're sinful even, but they're just my areas, my work, what I do for a living, my career, the way I manage my money. Lord, I'm an expert in all of those things. You don't need to be the Lord of those things. Listen, he needs to be the Lord of those things. And listen, take advice from Peter. Jesus will do more with those things when they're under his control than you can do with those things when they're under your control. And so continual growth comes from continued lordship as Jesus is the Lord of our lives. The second thing is this, is not only his continued lordship, but his continued cleansing. Jesus cleansed the leper and Jesus cleanses us. But for you and I, it's a continual cleansing. Do you realize that sin is like an onion? I don't know if you've discovered this yet in your Christian experience. But like, you know, God uncovers our heart. We come to Christ and he shows us our heart. And it's like this big onion. We go, oh, gosh, that's me. I need some right guard for me. You know, this is horrible. And you go, Lord, what is this? And he shows it to you and you look at it and you go and you you see it. You go, okay, I see. Okay, I'm sinning. I'm full of sin. And so I got to get rid of this sin. What is it? God goes, you drink too much. You smoke too much, you curse too much, you lust too much, and you're going, oh gosh, how are we going to do this? And God goes, don't worry, just let me deal with you and we'll work on it. And so he kind of slices it and then he goes, and he peels off those outside layers and we're like, yes, I got victory. I'm not smoking, I'm not cursing, I'm not drinking, I'm not lusting. Praise the Lord, I'm good. What do I got now? It's an onion. Oh, goodness, it still stinks. And And pride arrogance, selfishness, self-consummation. All, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? Let me have it. And you go, Lord, please deal with it. And we walk with him for a while and he peels off a layer. Yes, victory, teaching me, humility, awesome, good. What do we got? Oh, goodness, what is it? Have you noticed that in your life? See, it isn't that we come and we're cleansed and we're done. Okay, well, yeah, in a positional sense, that's true. God looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. But in a practical sense, there's a lot of work to do on all of us, isn't there? And so if we want to continually grow, it's a matter of continually bringing our lives to him and saying, Lord, there's more that needs to be cleansed out of me. 
There's more that needs to be sanctified and removed. And Lord, whatever those things are, may I not hold on to one of them or ever grow discouraged or ever cover the onion with some false deodorant smell that makes everybody else think I'm right, but you know I'm not. Let there be a continual cleansing within my life. And you know what that's met with is a continual forgiveness, is that he continues to shed his grace upon our lives. And if we continue in the simple things that started the ministry of Christ, his lordship, his cleansing, his forgiveness, and we never leave off to give ourselves to those things, then we will never leave off to grow. And we'll come to a point somewhere in our lives where we look and we say, God, how is it that I've come this far? And how is it that you've been able to do so much in and through my life? Because we're growing. May God give us the grace. Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you for what you reveal. We thank you for who you are. And so may we find, Lord, not just the wisdom of words, but Lord, may we find the power of your spirit that the things which we've heard may come off the page of antiquity and be made real in our lives presently. And so we lay ourselves down upon the altar of living sacrifice tonight. We lay down every area of us, Lord, that you would be the Lord of all of it. And we're asking, Father, that you would be our Christ, our Messiah, and our Savior. And the Lord, for some of us, that means falling at your knees tonight and saying, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man or a sinful woman. But then to hear you say, fear not, for from henceforth there's a plan. Lord, may we hear what you say to us tonight. And may it be personally applied. May we know your goodwill for each one of us. Thank you for speaking to us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.